Well, I want to add my thank you to Miller Valley Baptist Chapel for the way that they've treated us this week. The scouting report out of Indiana is that Northeasterners are stuffy. And they obviously haven't been to Chicopee. And we thank you for the way you've opened us up and made us to feel at home. Now, I have a problem tonight. And it's this, that everything I'm going to say has already been said. (laughs) Two or three times. Some of it. And Brother Earl started on Tuesday evening saying that we three speakers will probably be bumping into each other once in a while, but he wanted to avoid a collision. Where is Earl? Brother, it might have felt like a bump to you, but it was a collision to me. (laughs) And if that theological discussion had lasted just five more minutes on Tuesday, I wouldn't have anything left to say. So a word to the GA planning committee, don't plan a theological discussion on the topic of the final speaker. (laughs) Unless, of course, the intent is torture, and then it works. (laughs) So someone asked me, what are you going to do? Well, I didn't have time to prepare another message, so I'm simply going to bring you what I brought along from Indiana. And I'm going to believe that Psalm 1830 is true, that as for God, his way is perfect. And believe that that includes all bumps and collisions that we face in life. And I wonder, friend, if you have such a God as that, who works all things together for your good, such as our Savior. And even at the outset, I would commend him to you. Would you open your Bibles this evening to Philippians chapter 2? And I'd like to read the first 12 verses, the first 11 verses. If you have any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, over the last two evenings, we've considered the wonder and the purpose of the Incarnation. My assignment tonight is the implications of the Incarnation. What difference should it make in our lives that the eternal Son of God became man? What, what should I do with the Incarnation? Or more personally, what should I do with the Incarnate God? Because we, we ever have to remind ourselves that we're dealing with more than a doctrine. We're dealing with the God-man himself when we talk about the Incarnation. And I hope tonight to at least point the way with four answers to that question. You could list many others. Um, but we're going to hurry through the first three and camp longer on the fourth. What should I do with the incarnation? Number one, believe and confess it. There is no genuine Christianity that denies the incarnation. The Apostle John settled that very plainly 2,000 years ago when he wrote in his first epistle, Dear friends, 1 John 4, 1 to 3, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of of the Antichrist. So if they do not believe apostolic teaching on this point, then they're not from God, but from Antichrist. And we need a word just that plain today when fogginess and vagueness and ambiguity of doctrinal expression are claimed as virtues. When the fashion seems to be that mystery denies all attempts or defies all attempts at definition. That the, the mystery of it all supposedly removes it from clear propositional statements and doctrinal examination. Not so the apostle. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. We must believe in the Jesus revealed in Scripture. For there is no salvation in any other than this God incarnate. Jesus, so that the incarnation is one of those doctrinal tests that John gives us in his epistle. It's one of the doctrinal tests of all true religion. In fact, the Apostle Paul is able to write in 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then he quotes what appears to be an early Christian hymn about Christ, that he was manifested in the flesh. The very first words. There's no controversy in the apostolic church on these matters. On this, there's complete consent, common consent, no naysayers. And the very first point of this unanimous confession is that he was manifest in the flesh. No true Christian denies the incarnation. If you do not believe, I am 
Ego e me. You will die in your sins, Jesus said. John 8, 24. So we are to believe and clearly confess the incarnation and do it right into the teeth of all the 21st century denials of it. And we preachers are to see that the incarnation has its rightful place in the regular diet of our preaching and teaching of who Jesus Christ is. Secondly, adore it. Adore it. And that's what we've been doing these last two evenings as we've had the Scriptures opened up and we've seen the wonder and the purpose of the Incarnation. This is one of God's great works for which He is to be worshipped as much as the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that it seems that Paul's quoting from an early Christian hymn celebrating the Incarnation instructs us that this doctrine is more than something to contend for. It's also something to adore, to be amazed at. Something that's to find expression in our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to sing of the Incarnation and not just in December Hebrews 10 quotes from that inspired hymn of Psalm 40 and tells us what Christ said when he came into the world. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Then I said, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It's written of me. I have come to do your will, O God. And if the Old Testament saints sang of the incarnation, how much more should we after he has come? For me, kind Jesus, was thine incarnation, thy mortal sorrow and thy life's oblation. Love caused thine incarnation. Love brought thee down to me. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merits of his blood. This is the incarnation applied. When the children of God sing about the incarnation, Who can explore his strange design? Be amazed, O my soul. Pause and wonder. Bow and worship. Rise and sing. The incarnation is to be found in our worship. And it's to make its own special contribution to our singing with gratitude in our hearts to God. And I commend whoever has selected the hymns that we've been singing about the incarnation this this week. We believe and confess it. We adore it. And thirdly, we use, we use it. We use it. The incarnation tells us that there is a man, a real man enthroned at God's right hand. And he's there and he's there for us. Now, a man may have every tool he could ever need in his toolbox and yet be the worst off for not using them. Tools are meant to be used, employed, put to work. And so it is with the incarnate God ascended. John Owen uses this very language when challenging us to make better use of our great high priest. We have him. He's there for us. Are we making use of him? And the book of Hebrews urges the same in chapters 2 and 4 and 10. Since we have such a great high priest, 
since the Son of God shared in our humanity and because He became like us in every way, since He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but has been tempted in every way, therefore, implication alert, therefore, let us come confidently before the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Since He has opened up a new and living way into the most holy place through the veil, which is His body, therefore, implication alert, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now, those verses tell me that the incarnation is to make a subjective difference in the way that we come to God in prayer. Obviously, we we have no way to God other than through Him. But it's to make a subjective difference in the way and manner in which I come to God in prayer. We come confidently. We come boldly. We come with full assurance, not only that He hears us, That, of course, but that his heart beats with ours in all of our weaknesses, in all of our temptations. That human heart, he still retains, though throned in highest bliss, and feels each tempted member's pains for our afflictions his. So we have one in heaven who knows and who cares. And the reason he knows is not merely because he is God and therefore knows everything. But also because he is a man and has personally experienced the weaknesses of our human nature and the trials and temptations that we are going through. And it's out of that experiential acquaintance that he is able to help us because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He doesn't condemn us for our weakness, but He pities and sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. After all, He has mercy to give us. Forgiveness for our failures. He has grace to give us. Unmerited favor. Power to get up and continue the fight. Now, this is all familiar ground, but are we making full use of the incarnate God ascended? When confused and afraid, when discouraged and depressed, when burnt out and on empty, is he the first one I run to? Knowing that no one understands like Jesus. No one, no one understands like Jesus. Knowing that there is in his human heart a fellow feeling with what's in mine. Does that reality of the incarnation draw me to the throne of grace? Does it foster in me the greatest transparency and openness with him? Does it open the springs of my heart so that I spread the matter before him and I pour out my heart before him and I tell him all? 
When John the Baptist was beheaded in prison, the scriptures say his disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Is that you? Is that me? And you're sad? Do you go and tell Jesus because you found one there who sympathizes with you? Do you tell him what's bothering you? Do you bear soul to the Son of God? He became man that you might. And so we've got to get the incarnation making its way off the pages of our Bibles and into the very fabric of our prayer life, our conversations with the Son of God. And then fourthly, we not only believe and confess it and adore it and make use of it for Him, but we imitate it. We imitate it. And here we turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 as our chief text. B.B. Warfield entitled his sermon on this passage, Imitating the Incarnation. I'd like to suggest that the Incarnation is to be imitated in two directions. First of all, in our relationships with saints in the church, and then secondly, with sinners in the world. We begin with saints in the church. Where is it that we find this wonderful treatment of the Apostle Paul on the doctrine of the Incarnation? It's not in a textbook of systematic theology. It's in a letter to a local church with the same kind of people problems that we all have in our congregations to one degree or another, where self-importance is ever consulting its own needs and desires and demanding its own ways and rights, and where self-preoccupation is turned in on itself and trumps the interests of others. And so produces the ugly offspring of rivalries and quarrels, complaining and arguing and needless disagreements as people are looking out for number one. It was the self-sins that were destroying or at least marring the unity of the body and the church at Philippi and hindering their service to one another. Self-importance, self-preoccupation, self-promotion, self-will. So what does Paul do? Well, he certainly urges them to unity, verse 2. Have the same mind, have the same love, the same spirit, the same purpose. And he exhorts them to a a humble self-forgetfulness out of a loving concern for others, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Oh, but then the apostle goes to the big gun. The biggest motivational lever he can lay hold of. And he brings it to bear upon the congregation. He gives them an example of all that he's just called upon them to do. The example of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, his life and ministry, and then in his death. Let this mind be in you, he says, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, anytime we're called to imitate God, 
There are obvious limits to that imitation. And so it is with the imitation of the incarnation. The incarnation as an event is utterly unique and unrepeatable as Christ's death or resurrection. There's only one God-man. There's only one who starts out as God and takes to his divine nature a human nature. That's true of him alone. Nevertheless, the same spirit that moved our Lord in the incarnation is the pattern we are called to imitate. And husbands, you have an example of that in Ephesians 5.25. You are called to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And just because there are uniquely redemptive aspects of Christ's love that we could never imitate toward our wives, that does not remove the pattern or duty from us one half of an inch. We're still to love our wives just as Christ loved the church. So here, let's not forget Paul's main purpose in mentioning the Incarnation. He wants us to humbly stoop to serve one another in the body of Christ. He wants that going on all the time. And so he says, come with me and and behold the ultimate stoop of God the Son. None could start higher and none could stoop lower. And he moves us from heaven's glories to the hellish cross. And what marked him at each step from the incarnation his earthly life and ministry, and his, fine, his death, what marked him at each step was his self-humbling servanthood and what Warfield calls self-sacrificing unselfishness. Now, that's what took him to the death of the cross, isn't it? Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Unto death, even the death of the cross. But but that's not where it started. And that's what Paul is quick to tell us. He says, no, let's go back. Let's go back and see God the Son becoming man. Before the God-man ever humbled himself at Calvary, God first humbled himself in the incarnation. This first step downward was no small step. And we're taught that this self-humbling, self-sacrificing love is not something found only in the God-man. It is of the very essence of the eternal deity. That there is in the nature of God Himself a concern for the interest of others that is willing to forgo that which is His own right that He might enrich others. It's part of what and who He is. It's Part of his glory to being in very nature God, deserving the worship of sinless angels and the spirits of just men made perfect, constantly worshiping him. And yet, though that was his right, he did not consider his pre incarnate glory with the Father. Something to be grasped. He didn't consider it robbery as if it wasn't rightly his. And neither did he consider it something to be held on to and clutched. But he rather made himself nothing. Of no reputation. A nobody. 
in men's eyes, at least, and all in order to save us. So who are you now, you who so lately shone in majestic splendor brighter than the sun? Well, he's just the carpenter's son. We know him. We know his mother, Mary and Joseph. That's Jesus of Nazareth. And no good thing can come from Nazareth. He's the despised, the rejected Jesus. A nobody in men's eyes. And in becoming man, God the Son sacrificed his own enjoyment of that pre-incarnate glory that was his. So that when he's about to go back to his father, he's able to say to him, Father, glorify me now with the glory. Glorify me in your presence now, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world began. There was a glory he had with him that he walked away from. And now he wants to be restored too, as he's ready to ascend back to the Father. No, he allowed that glory to be eclipsed. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. And so it was out of this absorbing concern for our interests that he laid aside something of his own. And I've read of a mother who was so consumed with the interests of her children that she forgot herself and ran into a burning building to save them. And out of concern for my misery, the Son of God did the same. He saw me plunged in deep distress. He flew to my relief. He saw me. And he flew to, to my relief. He became man that he might become sin, that he might die for me, that he might rush right into the jaws of death to rescue me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that though he was rich, as rich as God is rich, because he was and is God, yet for your sakes, your sakes, he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich and rich forever. It was subtraction by addition. He is God, but in adding to his divine nature, human nature, it's a step downward. It's humiliation. Now, I enjoy reading on my patio at times, and, and there are these little creatures out of my patio, and they sometimes make their way up on the book or the Bible as I'm reading, and I really don't even see them there, except for the fact that sometimes my thumb hits one of them and leaves a little stripe on the page. A red stripe. And that's where there used to be a red spider mite. Tiny creatures. Now, if, if in some way I, as a creature, could, could take on the body of a spider mite and the nature of a spider mite to deliver them, that would be a step down for me, wouldn't it? But we're talking not... From one creature down to another creature. We're talking about the Creator. Adding to Himself the nature of a creature. The infinite, eternal God taking on to Himself a human nature that's prone to weakness and death and 
temptation. He humbled himself. Sometimes people are asked to share their most embarrassing moments in life. And it seems John might have been doing so in the 13th chapter of his gospel. He says, we were tired as we came into that upper room that night to eat the Passover with our Lord for the last time. Uh, we were glad for the borrowed room. It was complete, completely furnished as we came in. There was the pitcher of water. There was the, the basin and there was the towel all prepared for the washing of feet. The one thing that was missing was the servant to do the dirty work. And so we all sat down to supper. And none of us were in the mood that night to wash feet. I must confess that this very evening we were arguing about which one of us was the greatest. Frankly, it wasn't the first time we had that argument. In fact, it was kind of like a perennial argument that we just put on hold for a bit and then we'd come back to it. And that night in the upper room, we were back at it. So none of us were about to wash each other's feet. We thought it beneath us. We'd rather eat with dirty feet than to play the servant ourselves. So the water and the basin and the towel just stared back at us. And then he got up from the table. And without a word, our Lord laid aside the outer garments and dressed himself with a towel around his waist and proceeded to wash our filthy feet, all 24 of them. I don't know when I've been more embarrassed than when he, the Lord of glory, was down like a slave, washing and drying my feet when I have been too proud for such a task. If it wasn't one of John's most embarrassing moments, it should have been. It should have been. Pride never looked uglier than when Jesus was washing their feet. And he said that he had done it as an example for us to do to each other. And I say if the example of the God-man stooping is so devastating to proud self-importance, what should the example of the Incarnation do? To see God stooping, God humbling Himself, God disrobing, setting aside the outer garment of His resplendent glory, clothing himself in our lowly human nature, dressing himself not to be served, but to serve and sacrificing not just to wash our feet, but to cleanse our souls forever from sin in his own blood. Now, here's an example powerful enough to wither our selfish ambition. Ever read those words? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. And I have to ask myself, have I done anything without some selfish ambition? But here's an example that's strong enough to wither my pride. The Apostle Paul thinks that this will dry up the problems in the Philippian church right at the root if they'll see and, and have this glorious incarnation come home. I need this. I find with Martin Luther that by nature I'm hopelessly curved in upon myself. I find that self-preoccupation runs deep in my blood. 
I find with C.S. Lewis that I've never, never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am self-seeking and mercenary through and through. But here is help for the likes of me. For as I spend 15 minutes alone with God, considering the incarnation, something strange starts to happen in my soul. And I find that all my desires to be something feel so out of place with Him who made Himself nothing. And my efforts to appear as a somebody before you are pathetic before Him who became a nobody for me. In preoccupation with my rights, my interests, my comfort, my ease, and all I do out of selfish ambition becomes a stench in my own nostrils and I want to vomit it out and I find renewed desires to be like the Son of God with a self-sacrificing love poured out in the service of others where for the moment I can forget about myself in the preoccupation of another's need. And when I see God stooping to become man, then I pray with Amy Carmichael, God harden me against myself, the coward with pathetic voice who craves for ease and rest and joy, myself arch-traitor to myself, my hollowest friend, my deadliest foe, my cloth, whatever road I go. And then do I want more of this attitude of Jesus, more of this God-likeness to stoop low, to lift others high, to become poor, to make others rich, to become nothing, to make others something. So I say to you, imitate the incarnation of Jesus Christ in your local church. And that means you won't come to church expecting everyone to minister to you. You won't look at the pastor and say, come on now, entertain me. You won't look at your brothers and sisters and say, come on, it's all about me. Here, look at me. Talk to me. No, you'll be on the lookout for others in need. You will come to church considering, who can I spur on to love and good deeds by my own love and good deeds? You'll come to church Asking, who looks low that I might lift them up with a word of encouragement? Who can I rejoice with? Who can I weep with? Who can I pray with? Some of you know that my mother is close to death tonight. After ten, ten years of Alzheimer's and five years of a stroke that left her on her back for five years, She's heard the summons, and she'll soon be with the Lord. I fully expect to be seeking to preach her her funeral next week. Some of you knew about that. And you asked me, how's your mom doing? And the next day, you asked me again, how's she doing today? Any word today about your mom? How's your dad holding up? Then last night, right in the middle of a group of people fellowshipping, a dear brother and sister wrapped their arms around me in a holy huddle, and they prayed with me. I don't need to tell you what that does for church unity. 
I don't need to tell you what that does for the church of Christ, building itself up together in love. People with the incarnational attitude of Christ are not out there pushing their own personal agendas. They're not arguing for their own preferences. They're not seeking their own glory. No, they have this mindset of Christ that's looking to minister to others, that's willing to sacrifice for the good of others. And so they sacrifice getting in the last word. They sacrifice having it their way or getting the credit for something that's done. And I just want to say it as blunt as I know how. I think that that's why Philippians 2 is in our Bibles. I think that's why God the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to to even bring up the subject of the Incarnation. That beholding the glory of God in the Incarnation, we might be transformed into that same glory from one stage of glory to another, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is how it happens. Adoration leads to imitation. And so beholding Him in the Scriptures, we behold Him stooping until we stoop and forget ourselves in the service of others. Fix your eyes on Jesus in the Incarnation and you will become more like Him. He who is the pattern is also the power to go and do likewise. We draw this attitude from Him as a branch draws sap from the vine. And may this same attitude of the Incarnation ever mark us as an association of churches. Nothing, nothing ever done out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. taking a genuine interest in the welfare of others, so caught up in their concerns that we find ourselves rejoicing with them in their successes and weeping with them in their losses as if they were our own successes and losses, pleading for blessings for them as we do for ourselves, showing deference to one another, wanting as much to understand them as to have them understand us willing to play second fiddle to anyone here, to wash anyone's feet, to walk the second and the third and the fourth mile, pursuing peace and the good of others. Warfield asks, how far will you go in this matter of imitating the Incarnation? How far will you go? How low will you stoop to serve others? How much will you sacrifice this far and no farther? The example of the Incarnation doesn't leave much room for placing limits on how far we'll go or how low we'll stoop. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if this implication of the Incarnation really sinks in, we'll start measuring the health of our churches and of our association by how much there is of this attitude of the Incarnation among us. Now just briefly, I said that the imitating the incarnation applies not only to our relationships 
within the church, but also with sinners in the world. We heard it last night, didn't we, that it was in pursuit of redeeming sinners that the eternal Son of God became man, that he might die for them and save them. He came on a mission. Christ came on a mission to seek and to save the lost. So any talk of of imitating the incarnation must include our need for the same attitude that was found in Christ for the lost. It was in order to bring many sons to glory that he laid aside the enjoyment of that experience with the Father in glory and came and suffered. For us. Now let that mind be in you as you minister in the world. And I believe Paul still has this in mind as he moves through the rest of chapter 2. I think that's why Paul is able to say in verse 17 that he was being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of their faith. Where have we seen something like that before? If not in Christ himself and in his incarnation, his ministry and his death. And he speaks about Timothy and how his ministry was marked by this very thing of not looking out for his own interests. That harps back to verse 4 and this whole purpose for which he speaks of the incarnation. He wasn't looking out for his own interests, but sacrificed his own interests out of a genuine interest for others in the work of the gospel, the evangel, verse 24 And it was this incarnational mind of Christ that marked Paul's fellow worker Epaphroditus who risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ. So like his Savior, he did not count his life dear to himself, but was willing to lay it down for others. So I think that Paul himself is showing that this incarnational mindset must mark us and stamp us as people in our attitudes to the world. Jesus was praying on the night of his arrest for his disciples. And he said, Father, as you have sent me into the world, and I say that's biblical shorthand for the incarnation, as you have sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Well, there's differences to be sure. But it's not the differences that he draws attention to. It's the likenesses, the similarities. Kathos, just as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. David Brown says their mission was designed for no other end than to carry carry into effect the purpose of his own mission into the world. In fact, our mission to the world is the continuation of Christ's search and rescue mission into the world. He's still seeking and saving sinners, is He not? But His physical body is in heaven. And it's not ubiquitous. So He is now working through His body, the church, and His Word and His Spirit to seek and to save that which is lost on earth. And what Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up into heaven, he continues to do in his church, which is his body, and through his word and his spirit. So to carry on the mission of Christ requires the same mind of Christ. We can't for a moment carry on this mission of Christ unless we have the mindset of our Savior. 
Is it possible to go too far in pressing this point of imitating the incarnation? I'm sure it is, as our theological discussion proved. But I want to ask us Reformed Baptists an equally important question. Is it possible for us to not go far enough in imitating the incarnation as to the spirit that drove Christ to take on our flesh? My conscience says yes. And there's an easy chair at my house that says yes. And I find something in my nature that loves ease and rest. And that wants to keep a distance from the uncomfortable and often difficult world of sinners. But the example of the incarnate Savior will not let me go. He pursues me. He tracks me down. And if we imitate the incarnation in our ministry to the lost, it will mean at least two things. We must get close to sinners. I'm not even going to develop that. I simply want to remind you that Jesus didn't send a messenger. He came Himself. The Son of God came Himself and became one of us. And as He sends us into the world, He's not sending us... He he didn't pray that we would we'd be taken out of the world. But He sends us into the world because He wants the light in the darkness. He wants the salt in the decaying flesh. And so I ask you, do you you wake up each day on a mission? The great mission of our Savior to get close to sinners. There was nothing standoffish about this friend of sinners. He got close enough to people so that they could see Him, touch Him, hear Him. Not just the folks that came along to synagogue worship. He met sinners on their own turf, in their own homes, in their own highways, and along their own wells. And that Samaritan woman that was so immoral, he got close enough to her that, that she saw the respect in his eye as he spoke to her. And she heard it in the tone of, her vo- of his voice. And I ask, am I getting that close to sinners? That that they see that there is something like the Son of God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Him. And secondly, imitating the incarnation not only means getting close to sinners, but it means we must have more of Christ's self-sacrificing unselfishness. We don't like to talk about sacrifice, do we? But I remind you that there would be no incarnation without it. And there certainly will not be any great success in the mission of Christ without it either. You know, we sat there this morning and we heard of all that God did in India through William Carey. None of it would have happened without self-sacrifice. He talked about that, didn't he? About how he felt. How he he wrestled with leaving England. And I found that it was easy to sit there and listen about one of our heroes and his great sacrifice and successes. But it's another thing to be asked at the end of the day, who of us will make that sacrifice and go? I don't know about you, but I found some resistance in him. I felt the the pinch 
And something in me said, no. There's a resistance within. There's, there's a backwardness to self-sacrifice in my heart. And so I ask, is there any help for me? Where will I go to find help? Well, at the feet of the incarnate God, I find help. Oh, Lord Jesus, do not leave us without your own heart for the world. And I just wonder how, in how many ways the grand mission of the church sputters and stalls for a lack of this one thing, the self-sacrifice that's required to do it. What's going to prepare a new generation of missionaries to leave comforts of home and minister in difficult, difficult circumstances? They will not hold their things and comforts and ease with a closed fist, but with release and sacrifice. And where will we find wives of such ministers who are willing to stand by their man on some far-flung field of service in Turkey, South America, the Far East, and Africa, and Papua New Guinea. It's only those drinking deeply at the feet of the incarnate Son of God who will be willing to be made poor to make others eternally rich. And where will we find families willing to walk away from the Mother Church with, with all the friends and and the fellowship and the, the graded Sunday school classes and programs to, to go out with a few into a needy city. And there to plant a golden lampstand that will shine and glow with gospel light until Jesus comes back. It'll take sacrifice. And where will we finance it all? Where will we find the money for these Missionaries and church plants. Well, in fellowship with Him who became poor to make us rich. That's what makes Christians excel in the grace of giving. Even in an economy that is sluggish, of extreme poverty, Paul says. I wonder, could you impoverish yourself for $10 a month? To see some sinner in Tinley Park in Tucson made rich forever? Who in witnessing will risk being counted a fool for Christ's sake? Well, it will be those who walk with Him who in order to save us made Himself nothing. And what will drive me out of my easy chair and pry that remote out of my hand or that book and get me out to sit beside that old lady that just lost her husband and is unconverted and needs someone to tell her of Jesus. Or go out to my neighbor to tell him about the Savior. It will be those, and it will be the same attitude that brought the Lord out of glory and down into our world and joined to our natures forever. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May we find help in Him who, who knows our weakness and He knows our slowness to sacrifice.
So having pointed to us the example of Christ, the ultimate stoop in the incarnation, life, and ministry of death, verse, eight, verse 9 says, Therefore, another implication alert. God exalted Him to the highest place. And gave Him a name that's above every name. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Never was a father more proud of a son than when God the Father looked at His Son's stoop and humbled Himself and sacrificed Himself. And He showed His pleasure in His Son's self-sacrifice by lifting Him up and exalting Him to the highest place and giving Him the highest name. And now He expects every knee to bow to Him and every tongue to confess Him as Lord, as Jehovah, as God. Have you taken the implication? This Christ deserves your worship. Renounce every other Lord Cast yourself upon His mercy. Say to God, look on Him and pardon me. Come tonight, poor sinner, and throw yourself upon the Savior. He is full of grace and truth. Let's pray. It is You, Lord Jesus, that we believe in and that we confess it's You that we adore and worship. And it's You that we turn to because You know our weakness and our sin. And we seek mercy. We seek grace. We seek forgiveness for our slowness to stoop. Our slowness to sacrifice. Our preoccupation with self. And we ask You to come by Your Spirit and through Your Word and work within us the very same mindset that is in You. That it might be seen in our local churches, in our ministries, in our associations, and in our outreach to the world. We ask it all for the worthy, the high, and exalted name of Jesus Christ. Amen.